So the reading is from Revelation 21, and if you want to know what page it's, it's on, it's on 1,249, if you don't know where it is. So, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderous, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the the idolaters, and all liars. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be twelve thousand stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, 
for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thanks for reading that. Right, let's pray, shall we? Father, as we consider your word this evening with the Apostle Paul, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us. Amen. Where is the world heading? What's its ultimate goal? And possibly nearer to home, where are we heading? What's our ultimate goal? Now, of course, if you're an atheist or some other form of materialist, then you'll find those questions quite simple. It is meaningless to talk about an ultimate goal. The existence of the world and our existence has no purpose. There is no ultimate goal, or for that matter, any other goal. We, human beings, are merely the sum of our material parts, and we are subject to decay, and ultimately, that decay will lead to our bodily functions stopping, our consciousness ceasing, and death is the end. Now, living as we do in the modern West, uh, I think we could all be forgiven for believing uh, that that is the uh, overwhelming view of people today, particularly educated people. But it isn't. In, in, in fact, even today, it's a minority view in the world. And historically, uh, the overwhelming majority of people have rejected it. Indeed, the overwhelming majority of leading philosophers have rejected it. They have suggested that there is more to us than our material parts, and that death is not the end. However, as with all other things that philosophers discuss, there are a variety of views as to what happens thereafter. Of course, some, even today, take the view that when we die, our soul, however that is conceived, and by the way, it's a very slippery concept, but however conceived, our soul somehow gets absorbed into the universal consciousness, whatever that is. Now, you might think that that is a modern New Age-type view, but it has very ancient antecedents. There's nothing new under the sun. In fact, uh, many uh, Stoic philosophers at the time of the Roman Empire took that view. It's actually a form of pantheism or perhaps panentheism. But then other people take the view that the soul somehow migrates to other physical forms, and that, of course, leads to some view of reincarnation, uh, which is clearly the, review, the view of some religions, particularly in, in India. And then other people have taken the view that the, the soul continues in some kind of independent existence, whether embodied or not. 
And uh, the conception of that may be somewhat bleak. Those of you who've read Homer's uh, Odyssey or Iliad will realize that the Greek view uh, was, yes, that the, the soul continued in some kind of embodied form, but it was a pretty bleak existence. H however, most people who take this view have in mind a, a, an ideal existence in heaven or paradise or something of that sort. And, and I suspect that most Christians in the world today believe a variety of that alternative. At least, it appears a lot of hymn writers do in any event. And of course, it contains a lot of truth. Didn't Jesus say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise? It's, it's, a, it's a tremendous truth. But, on its own, it is a serious distortion of what the Bible teaches. And it's a serious distortion for at least two reasons. Uh, first of all, it gravely understates the extraordinary future that God has planned for us. May on occasions even make it sound rather boring. But secondly, it's far too individualistic. It totally ignores the future of the world, the rest of God's creation. And we need to be aware of that. And that is why we need to look at Revelation chapter 21. So, if I may, I will ask you to, uh, to make sure you've got it open in front of you. If you're using the Church Bibles, it's page 1249, uh, although I realise that a number of people will use their phones. I was rather amused recently in a church meeting that uh, somebody said that they really were appalled that when the speaker started to speak in church these days, people just got out their phones and did something else. Well, I'm hoping that uh, most of you will be getting them out in order to, uh, to, to follow the reading. Um, at the very least, I won't be able to prove otherwise. <laughs> right. Um, well, as we heard a moment ago in our reading, John had a great vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven, uh, uh, coming out of heaven from God. And later in our reading, we heard uh, some of the details of that city. It was like an enormous cube, 1,500 miles across, 1,500 miles deep, 1,500 miles high, uh, and bedecked with jewels. I don't have time to go into the detail of all of that today. And in any event, what we need to focus on is not the detail, but what it's really teaching us about the, the fundamental truths. And the first thing it's teaching us is so obvious we may miss it. It is that our future is bound up with the future of the world. God is going to renew the world. He is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Now, Christians, of course, disagree about the degree of continuity between the existing earth 
and the earth referred to in Revelation and indeed other parts of the Bible, some taking the view that God just does away with the existing totally irrelevant new start, others taking the view that there's a degree of continuity. We could discuss that for a long time without coming to any conclusion. Christians have for 2,000 years. Um, but, but in any event, it's not a first-order issue, is it? Uh, also, Christians disagree about the significance of this giant jeweled city. Is it a vision of a, an actual city? Or is it a vision of a symbolic representation of the people of God, the church? Now, uh, Christians take different views. For what it is worth, I will say that I believe it's the latter. And the reason I say that is because of the terminology used uh, about it. Uh, if you look at the end of verse 2, it says that uh, the holy city came from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then in verse 9, the angel says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he showed the city. Now that's terminology used in the rest of the Bible of the church, of the people of God. But I do stress that is my view. I fully recognise that there are good arguments the other way as well. But once again, that's not the first order issue that we should be focusing on tonight. Now, let's look at the key points about the new earth. What are we told about it? Well, first of all, God's going to be there. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then if you go on to verse 22, I didn't see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You don't need a temple representing God's presence when you've got God himself with you. Do you? I realise, though, that it is a little bit difficult to imagine what it means that God will be with us. After all, God is not corporeal. He, he, he's, not, he's not physical. But as with so many other things, this becomes a lot easier when we think about Jesus. Did, did, did you notice in verse 22 it said, The Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The lamb there is referring to Jesus, of course. John here has picked up on an image first used by John the Baptist, who, when he saw Jesus, said to the people around him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What this is saying is that the re resurrected Jesus will be present in the new earth. Th think about Jesus' ascension. Do you remember, he ascended bodily into heaven. And then the disciples were told he will return the same way. And in this vision here, we have a vision of the fulfillment of that. The fulfillment of Christ's return to earth. Jesus will be physically present in God's new earth. That's point one, and my goodness, it's an important one. But then there's a second thing 
this new creation will be perfect. Verse 4, he will wipe away, wipe, sorry, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Isaiah had a similar image, and he added various other things that won't be there. In particular, there'll be no more violence, no more enmity. This will be perfect. And it'll be perfect in another way as well, because God will provide for his people. Um, We're just going to dip slightly into next week's reading uh, at this point. Just look at the beginning of uh, chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood at the tree of life, bearing, the tw- bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. God will provide what we need. And what's more, he will provide not just material things, he'll provide guidance. Go back to verse 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. There will be no more wrongdoing. There will be no want, because God will provide. There will be no going down the wrong path, because God will be guiding everyone. This is going to be a tremendous place. But of course, it gives rise to the question, who's going to be there? And and in order to address that question, we we need to go back to chapter 20, uh, which we looked at two weeks ago. Go back there and take a look at the second half of verse 12 of chapter 20. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. We'll come back to the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. In other words, we're told that after death comes judgment. People will be judged uh, according to what they have done. And there is a terrifying picture in today's reading of the result of that judgment. Go on to verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. For those who do evil, there is no future. What it holds is simply judgment and punishment. And lest we think that John had gone a bit overboard on this and had become slightly carried away with religious fanaticism, don't forget, he's only really quoting Jesus in relation to this. This is Jesus, uh, Matthew thirteen forty-one. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Uh, they will throw them into the blazing furnace, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, as I've pointed out before. One of Jesus' favorite expressions, weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
So for those who do evil, there is no future. Not in this kingdom or anywhere else. So who are these inhabitants? Well, you might expect John to go on and say, but those who do good, this is what's going to happen. That's what happens to those who do evil. This is what happens to those who do good. But he doesn't. Go back to verse 12 of chapter 20. and Go back to the bit I didn't read, the beginning of it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books, note that, plural, were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And then have a look at the end of our reading today, verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, the city, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we have here Jesus' metaphorical book in which he writes the names of those who are going to be the inhabitants of his new earth. But that still begs the question, Who are they? And for that, we have to dip into next week's passage just once more. Verse 14 of chapter 22, I should say. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. That's continuing the imagery. But but, but it's actually an abridged version of what John has said earlier in Revelation. You may remember that back in chapter 7, he saw a vision of people dressed entirely in white. And uh, having admitted he didn't know who they were, he was told this. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Again, complex, characteristically complex imagery. But it's saying, who are the ones who are written in the book of life? Who are the ones who will therefore be the inhabitants of the new earth? Well, it is those who have availed themselves of the benefits of Christ's death. We're actually right back to the famous John 3.16, which was alluded to in one of our songs earlier. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What's eternal life? It's life in God's new creation. Now you may say, well, hang on a moment. Isn't John contradicting himself in the space of a few verses? He has just said that... Evil is going to be judged. Who here has done evil things? We, we all have. Particularly note, when it refers to idolatry, um, do remember the Bible gives a pretty broad spread to idolatry. Love of money is idolatry. There's all sorts of things that are idolatry. Of course we've all done evil. And it says the unclean won't go there. Well, we know that before God we are unclean. So, so how, how is this? It's not a contradiction for this reason, because God has dealt with that problem. This comes from Isaiah 61. I could have picked many, many passages in the Bible. Isaiah. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. I love that image. It's the image of God giving us 
this wonderful cloak to put on that despite our dreadful, dirty appearance, despite all we've done, we've got this glorious robe so that when he looks on us, he says, I see my righteousness there. That person is in a right relationship with me. They, they are in right standing before me. And think about this, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. You were washed. Note that idea, the, the cleansing of, of, of uncleanness. You were sanctified, set apart. You were justified, put in right, in right standing before God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You see, if we put our trust in Jesus, then we are, as it were, given that robe of righteousness by God. So he no longer looks on our evil deeds. We, we are washed, cleansed. So he, he no longer says, these people are impure. They cannot enter my new creation. We're set apart as people in his book of life. When the Bible refers to us being sanctified, it refers to us being set apart. And how is that? It, it's, it's the same idea as having our names written in that book of life. That's what salvation's all about. There's one more thing we should note. It's this. Just as Jesus will be physically present in the new earth, so will we. Uh, You may have noticed, and you'll notice it again if you just read the whole of the end part of Revelation uh, sometime, you'll notice that there are bits which appear calculated to emphasize the physical solidity of the future. I, I remember in a sermon here years ago, one of our curates said that the vision of the Bible of the future is very earthy. And it is. And Paul makes that point even more strongly in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read a few extracts from that. I can't read it all. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, Adam, so we will bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Do do you see the point? Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so we we will be. Jesus is the first fruits. He's the model of that. And, And think about it. After his resurrection, Jesus did several things to stress his solid humanness. He ate some fish. Ghosts don't eat fish. He encouraged people to touch him to see that he was really there. And and we are being told we will be like him. You see, our future doesn't comprise floating around the ether in some detached, non-bodily, spiritual something. No. As Jesus was raised from the dead, 
so we will be raised from the dead. As Jesus will be present in the new earth, so we will be present in the new earth. That's the Bible's promise. That's what God has said he will do for us. Now, I know it raises all sorts of questions. It's been doing so for 2,000 years. The Sadducees took Jesus on. They asked him questions. Do you remember about marriage? About what will happen in with marriage after the resurrection. And it was designed to show that the whole idea of resurrection, the whole idea of life after death, was completely ludicrous. Well, as Jesus said, well, you don't understand either the scriptures or the power of God. But Paul admits that he didn't understand quite what kind of bodies we'll have, because blatantly they can't be the same as ours. There must be some difference, because the basic problem with our bodies is they're subject to decay, aren't they? I remember at university, uh, somebody found out that after about the age of 20, your brain starts to decay. And uh, we kept pointing out it was more evident in some people than in, in others. Uh, I don't think we ever recognised it might be true of us. But, 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 but that's the point. There's got to be some difference. We don't know what it's going to be. If you want to read more about this, do have a look at 1 Corinthians 15 afterwards. But what we do know is that the new earth is going to be fantastic. Just think about it. Think about an earth where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain or violence or enmity. An earth in which we dwell and Jesus is there with us. We, we should really think about that. That's what the Bible is saying is going to happen. And we should keep that at the forefront of our minds. Oh, I know some Christians get terribly worried that, um, we, that if we focus too much on the future, we'll somehow stop caring about the important things in the present, the earthy things we should be getting on with now, that we'll become so heavenly-minded we're no earthly use, that we just won't care about this world and this life. But... But actually, the very reverse should be true. If we really do understand that fantastic hope to which we're called, the inheritance we have, a new world with Christ, over which Christ is, is ruling, if, if, we, if we really understand that, then it should galvanise us to action. You see, if secular materialism is true, then... We have no hope beyond the grave. There's nothing worth dying for. If there's nothing worth dying for, why is there anything worth living for? But if the vision we have here is true, then we have this wonderful hope and it gives meaning to our whole lives because we know our labour for the Lord will not be in vain. And we should keep it in mind. Let's not worry about being so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly use. Let's remember that is the great hope to which we're called. That's our inheritance in Jesus Christ. All those who repent and turn back to Jesus, turn back to God, putting their trust in Jesus will have their names, our names, written in the book of life of which we read and will be inhabitants of the new earth. And the guarantor of that 
guarantor is Jesus himself, who was raised from the dead as the first fruits and has gone ahead of us. Amen.